Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Margaret Trilly, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Impact Assets, a nonprofit impact investing firm with over $1.2 billion in assets under management. The majority of those assets sit under their donor-advised fund, which is a charitable giving vehicle, the mechanics of which we'll dive into in the conversation. What makes Impact Assets donor-advised fund unique is the way in which they combine impact investing with charitable giving. This approach has led to a huge surge in interest in 2020, as philanthropists and impact investors tackle the interrelated challenges of the pandemic and racial injustices. My conversation with Margaret touches upon the structure and advantages of donor-advised funds, what she sees as the role of impact investors and philanthropists during these crises, and the ways in which Impact Assets is trying to channel both investment funds and charitable giving to key causes. Let's jump into the conversation. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. To kick us off, can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do at Impact Assets? Sure, I'd love to. So Impact Assets is a nonprofit impact investing firm. We are dedicated to catalyzing the adoption of impact investing, and we do that through a number of different offerings. We're best known for our donor-advised fund, and that's where the majority of our $1.2 billion in assets under management sits. But we also run um, some microfinance notes, some agriculture notes, and some custom strategies for clients that are sitting outside of the donor-advised fund, but under the umbrella of the nonprofit. And we really enjoy working with our clients to help them actualize their vision for making change in the world through their philanthropic assets. Can you explain what a donor-advised fund is, how, how it works? Sure. Mechanically, the way it works is that a donor um, makes a donation to the donor-advised fund. They set up an account with the donor-advised fund, and at that point in time, they're getting a tax write-off like they would if they had set up a foundation or made a donation to a nonprofit. And then in this account, the assets sit, and they're invested in most donor-advised funds um, in, in some sort of modest investment strategy, some standard investment strategy, and then the donor will grant them out over time. And, you know, for those who have had a big windfall, like a, an inheritance or the sale of a business, it gives them some time to set up their philanthropic giving strategy. It's a lot like opening up a family foundation. And the major difference is that um, foundations have, because they're independently run and they're run by the donor, there's a lot of regulation and they're very expensive to run. It requires a lot of oversight. It requires an independent board and a lot of governance to make sure that those assets aren't going back to benefit the donor. The donor advised fund setup really outsources all of that. And all of that administration and the oversight is done by the donor advised fund sponsor. And um, it makes it, it ultimately a much more economical choice, and it frees up the donor from having to do all that work, and it allows them to focus on what matters most to them, which is the purpose of setting up the those charitable assets, which is to have the impact in the world. You, you mentioned that most donor-advised funds offer a pretty pretty like modest, pretty standard um, investment option. What, what's the differentiation for impact assets? 
Well, we are dedicated to um, catalyzing impact investing. So all the assets on our platform are in some way having something to do with impact. So we offer we offer a number of um, some of those standard portfolios. So the moderate, conservative, aggressive, like those types of choices that you would see in any other donor advised fund. The difference on our platform being that all of those strategies are 100% impactful. Um, the choices that we make in those portfolios have the same investment properties, but they're also doing good in the world for a social or environmental cause. Um, we also have a number of um, pre-approved impact funds on our platform. Those tend to be private debt and equity funds, and they're, they tend to be focused on a theme around social justice or something around um, environment or climate. And uh, and some of them are, are broad brush sustainability goals, but it, it allows our clients to also pick and choose um, from an a la carte menu how they want to lean in with those investments. And then we also have a program where we allow clients to recommend investments to us just as they can recommend a grant. Um, we call that our custom investments program. And it's it's really a way for them to have impact, um, another way for them to have impact, I'll say. And then uh, I mentioned earlier, we we also build custom portfolios for some of our larger clients. So when they come to us wanting to work on a, uh, a big hairy problem like climate change or social justice, not only have we done this many times for other clients, but we see how some of the pioneers in the space, um, some of some of our clients are multi-billion dollar, you know, philanthropic efforts behind them. They have huge staffs and and they run a lot of their transactions and their activity through us. And so we're able to to learn from what they're doing and collaborate with them in forming custom strategies for the clients that we're working directly with. That's that's really interesting. So so you get a lot of your or you get some of your deal flow inbound from your your donors are you are you doing diligence on those companies and you know negotiating terms and stuff or or what is your involvement in the deal well we do about uh well this year we'll do between 150 and 200 of those deals so we're doing wow. you know 5 to 10 a week uh the volume there is is tremendous the main focus of our review is compliance so i mentioned earlier how we take on the oversight and the governance that you would, you know, sort of outsourcing the, the, the type of work that would happen in a foundation. So we do that review on behalf of the donors to make sure that there's in no way that money is going back to benefit the original donor. Um, so we have a, a pretty extensive compliance review there. We do negotiate some terms. And um, in some cases for our clients, um, they can hire us to do due diligence. Um, but in many of the cases, in our custom investments program, the clients are doing their own due diligence and making their own assessment on whether it's a fit for their strategy. And just like they can recommend the disbursement of funds to a nonprofit in the form of a grant, they can recommend the disbursement of funds to a company or a fund that is for profit as long as it's having you know, an impact. And we are also screening for that as well. Got it. So they can both advise the, the charitable giving and the for-profit investments. That's right. It seems like a really great on-ramp into impact investing, right? I mean, once this, this money's been earmarked for, for charitable giving, I imagine that that allows people to be kind of um, more experimental, I guess, in their mm -hmm. investment strategy. Have, have you seen clients use the impact assets platform to to learn about impact investing and then take that back to their own personal, you know, their, their other portfolio. 
Oh, they're rather assets. Yes, most certainly. We find even someone who comes to us with a really well-developed strategy and they know exactly what they want to do, it still takes multiple years to deploy the assets in nonprofits and in um, impact investing, um, whether they're investing in companies or funds. It, it just takes time to find just the right organizations that are working you know, really in the center of the bullseye for the client in terms of impact. And then for the clients who are less sure uh, about what they want to do or they have an idea that they want to work on climate change, we really embark on a journey with them, um, trying out different things or different strategies or, or working in different parts of the solution. And the client kind of goes on a personal journey as well. Um, they're they're learning about um, the systems that have created these problems and they're learning about the solutions that can solve them. And sometimes that really resonates and they lean in and they want to do more and that becomes their thing. And other times they find that they want to move to something else. And we also find that current events like fires or elections or movements can really change focus as well. So we're constantly in conversation with our clients, revolving the strategy. And because they come to us investing in things that are market rate and then also concessionary, every client has a different take on, on the investment properties. You know, we find that, you know, the market rate investments, even if they're looking for concessionary investments, you know, will happen on market rate investments. They're just going to be a good fit for any portfolio, you know, regardless of whether it's a charitable portfolio or a personal portfolio. And the added bonus, if you if invest in it in your personal portfolio, is that it's also having impact in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've we've certainly seen encouraging data this year around the performance of of mm -hmm. funds, um, impact funds, and you know relative to to the market. But to your point about potentially concessionary returns, does mm -hmm. the fact that you know they they've kind of already earmarked this money for for donation, does that allow people to pursue? concessionary yet like particularly catalytic type investments? Is that what most people are looking for? Or are you still trying to achieve market rate returns? I, I would say it varies by client. And I think there's maybe three groups. Uh, you know, there are clients who come in really wanting to achieve market rate investments no matter what um, while having impact. So they have a very high bar on both of those strategies. And, and we're looking for things that, you know, in, in the Venn diagram where the two circles overlap, we're looking for things squarely in the overlap and it has to meet the high bar on both strategies. There's other clients who really want to be concessionary in their strategy. They view it as, as a kind of a better form of philanthropy. So then when those dollars go out, there's a chance that they could come back and then go out again. And so mm -hmm. that they have you know multiple tours of duty on on impact on those same dollars, but they want to be concessionary. And so just getting the money back or getting a portion of the money back is an advantage over granting it out. And then we have clients that are actually pretty sophisticated and they're looking cause by cause and saying, this is a place where philanthropy is a better tool or um, you know something like working in extreme poverty or where market rate investing, you know, is abundant and and should be done like in some of the solutions around climate change. And so um, they'll have a very sophisticated strategy where we're actually mapping on, you know, this this matrix, like where we're looking for market rate investments, where we're looking for philanthropic granting opportunities and where we might be looking for concessionary investing. And even in those most sophisticated strategies, I would say across all three client types, something can come along that is 
really concessionary. And, you know, if, if it's in the middle of the bullseye from an impact perspective and the client falls in love with it, you know, even if it's a fully market rate strategy, mm-hmm. I find I find there are times when we're considering these concessionary investments. So it, the, unfortunately, the answer is it depends. <laughs> um, and, it, and even it, it changes. But as I've worked in this space now for 10 years, it's, it's, uh, it really is such a dynamic strategy. It's much more complicated. People think of it as, you know, less or more laxed than a typical investment strategy. And I think it's, it's, it can be much more complex and, and a much more difficult to source investments when you have two strategies that are in some ways mutually exclusive and you have to really shrink the universe to get to that point of overlap. Yeah, it sounds incredibly complex. I mean, you're talking about all different financial returns, asset classes, uh, mm-hmm. impact areas. So how, how do you source most of your deals? What kind of deals are you providing for your for your clients? Well, it depends on um, the place in the platform that we're looking for. In our model portfolios, we're looking for more standard investments. In our private debt and equity platform, we're looking for private debt and equity funds. And we have a number of ways we source those deals. We, we run the Impact Assets 50, which is uh, more of a directory of the top you know, 50 most leading edge um, impact funds. We also have an emerging managers list that uh, is under that IA50 umbrella. And, and that is all selected by an external committee of, of, you know, all the luminaries in impact investing. And, you know, we tap into their networks um, to get the applicants for the IA50 and the emerging managers lists. And, um, and then that group, you know, narrows down the very deep pool of applicants to um, the small list of ones that we're going to highlight every year. So that gives us a tremendous sense. We get a lot of inbound, like most investment firms do. Um, asset allocators get a lot of it. I probably get, I don't know, five or six a day. Um, <laughs> and um, and that's and that's typically just on the fund side. And, and where we're really sourcing, you know, company level or organization level Opportunities is when we're in, in work with a client on a custom strategy. And there we've done a full landscape analysis and we're tapping into, you know, all of the actors in a in a particular sector. And we're we're also collaborating with our clients and other other um, large foundations in the space who are doing impact investing for for deal flow. And one thing I really enjoy about impact investing, having spent most of my career on Wall Street is that there really is not that sense of, you know, proprietary, you know, deal flow. Um, mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of collaboration because ultimately we're trying to, you know, solve for a really tricky cause. And and the more money that goes behind solving those problems, you know, the better. So we tend to really be collaborative and um, we're working with, um, you know, big foundations like Rockefeller Foundation uh, in a lot of cases on, on these you know, causes and looking at deal flow. So we're pretty well tapped in. We're in sort of the, the 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 middle of the ecosystem with a lot of collaborators and a lot of great, really well staffed clients as well. Um, so we see we see quite a bit. Yeah, it is an incredibly collaborative field. It's uh, one of the things that that I love about it. Um, you, you mentioned the IA fifty, and I, I mm-hmm. just quickly wanted to say that that was one of my introductions to the field of of impact investing. It, it's a it's a database of of innovative fund managers and in you know list managers by um, geography and, and impact air industry and assets under management and I think SDGs maybe 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for any any listeners who are curious about you know what some of the most innovative impact investors around the world are, are doing, it's a it's a great resource. I think so too. I've I've been here at Impact Assets less than two years, or coming mm-hmm. up on two years, and um, I was referring people to the IA50 for, I don't know, probably five or six, seven years before coming here. Um, It is a tremendous resource. I I think it's terrific. But it's important that people understand it's not not a best of list. Um, Mm -hmm. We're really trying to showcase the thought leaders. So just want to be careful that everybody understands it's not it's not meant to be a, you know, a pre-approved list. It's really, uh, you know, here's where to start or here's where to look. Mm Mm-hmm. You, you've seen um, a massive increase. There was a press release a few weeks ago yeah. um, about the increase in in both money deployed as impact investments and mm-hmm. um, charitable giving that you, that you've seen year over year. Um, do you do you think that's due to uh, a sense of urgency created by the pandemic and, and racial injustices, or or do you think it's a more of like a general increase in awareness about impact investing? What what do you attribute that to? Uh, it's most definitely a response to the unprecedented times we find ourselves okay. in. Um, charitable giving is actually very cyclical, um, and mm-hmm. you can map. You know, we I'm, I'm a data person, so I've you know studied the flows of contributions. I've studied the flows of of grants, and I've studied the flows of investments um, over the ten year life of Impact Assets. And there's a, most definitely a seasonal flow to investments that's different to the seasonal flow to grants. Both of those saw sustained aberrations this year, um, starting in, in the middle of March. So, so how much of an increase have you seen from from your clients? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, our grant volume has gone up four hundred percent, and our impact investing volume up two hundred percent since the beginning of the year. Our clients have done two hundred and fifty-two million in grants and impact investments, which is it's just it's a record six months. And 214 million of that was channeled towards COVID-related initiatives. So it was about 160 million to, you know, supporting our frontline heroes and the and the health pandemic, the health crisis, and another um, 29 million to supporting small businesses and low-income individuals, and then another 24 million to um, social environmental entrepreneurs to help them weather the the economic downturn. Being in conversation with our largest clients, we're we're finding that everybody sort of put their normal strategies on pause to evaluate what role they should play in the the pandemic. And we ended up working with them to develop um, various strategies around um, addressing several pillars of the COVID crisis. And what was really fascinating was, you know, as we worked with these large billion dollar family offices, we were also able to create these charitable funds, which enabled our clients to, uh, our smaller clients to kind of co-invest alongside of the work of, of those big institutional philanthropists. And that response is an ability to do that and to showcase the work that, that was happening across the field, I, I think also accelerated the giving because everybody had really good intentions and wanted to lean in, nobody had a playbook for how this was supposed to go or where the needs were going to be or or how to have the biggest impact. And so we've we've tried to make that, you know, sort of open source that strategy as much as possible and make it easy for people to channel investment funds and grant making funds to the key causes. 
Yeah, interesting. You you mentioned um, having allowing smaller clients to invest alongside, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the big foundations and stuff, and that that's an interesting advantage, I guess, that I hadn't thought of. So, if I opened a, a donor advised fund with you, could I? You know, I could potentially invest in, I don't know, a Lumen Capital, say Darren Dodson's fund of of funds, where I probably would not be able to hit the minimum threshold. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't be able to personally. Does it allow you to pool capital and invest in these private funds that that your clients otherwise wouldn't have access to? Yes, yes, most definitely. So there's two ways to get into a, a fund like Illumin. Um, we love Illumin here at Impact yeah. Assets. <laughs> Darren's um, great. I just saw him on a panel yesterday, which is why <laughs> I thought yeah. of him. He's he's great. He's They're doing some really impressive work. I agree. Um, so uh, we are investors in Illumin, and we've um, invested in Illumin through our custom investment program. So a client recommended that investment. Those investments can be as small as twenty five thousand. Um, mm-hmm. We find that fund managers will take on a much smaller investment like that, and they like to be on our platform because they know we're going to turn around and and showcase that investment to all of our other clients. So. We're very careful about saying, you know, if we've done full diligence and put it on our private debt and equity platform, people know that that we've done the full diligence and there's sort of an endorsement or a stamp of approval or a recommendation behind investing in that fund. And we do aggregate assets to meet a minimum there. And we've negotiated that with the fund manager. The advantage of the custom investments program is that we also showcase those those investments to all of our other donors who may pile on. So even a, a $25,000 investment can seed, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars more, you know, as other investors wow. get interested in pile on. And we're, we're just sharing simply that, you know, Alex has made an investment in Illumin and people are clear that it's one of our clients has made this investment, but we're, we're giving it a spotlight and others, you know, can check it out and do their own diligence and, and also make a custom investments recommendation. So there's a lot of power in the community of our platform um, when it comes to fundraising. And we view our role as a catalyst. And so we really do lean in into that role of getting everybody a spotlight. What do your clients expect in terms of reporting? I mean, you cover such a huge range of issue areas and industries. And I mean, what are they looking for in terms of impact reporting? Impact reporting is is as bespoke as the impact strategies. So there's really two levels of reporting. There's measuring it at the level of SDGs, which is mm-hmm. you know what what your intention was or what causes you're supporting. And then there's measuring you know certain outcomes with very specific metrics. And the metrics level is is very bespoke. Um, it's it's a lot easier to do it at the cause level and. So as a provider of impact reporting, we're all struggling. All the providers are struggling with how do you do something that's ta- that feels really tailored to, to what is a very bespoke strategy and, and in a scalable way that doesn't, you know, sink your organization in terms mm-hmm. of um, the amount of effort it takes to provide that reporting. So it, it is a challenge I think our industry is, is grappling with, but we're making great strides in terms of standardization and you know, everybody's working on the technology. And so I think in the next few years, we're going to see some great leaps forward in the space. Mm-hmm. What's your personal theory of change impact area that that you're most passionate about? You know, it, it does change. I find myself, <laughs> it changes. I, I kind of got myself steeped into, you know, I worked with family offices before coming to impact assets 
And I was really in service of their impact themes in uh, 2016, late 2016, as I was watching the climate pages come off of the White House website, I got really energized about that. And I feel a real sense of urgency around climate. And I live here in California. I just spent, you know, last week I had a week off. I was going to go camping for 10 days with my family and we ended up stuck inside um, worrying about the quality of air in our house. And, you know, and all of us had headaches and we're starting to feel the issues, you know, just from the smoke. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're hearing that, you know, in 10 years, this is going to look tame. So, um, you know, it just, the climate change is here, it's coming, and it seems to be like the pandemic. The pandemic has has affected people disproportionately, just the way that climate change will. People with resources will have more resiliency no matter what, and they'll have more access. And we're seeing that with the pandemic, we're seeing that with climate change, we're seeing that with the fires in California. People who have always been disadvantaged in our systems have an outsized effect from from these large systems changes. And so um, this is a really complicated answer to what I'm sure you thought was a simple question. But no, no, I, it's, across all not. of these <laughs> themes, like what, what I'm really passionate about now is the impact of all of these macro causes on vulnerable communities, because it's the same people who are getting hit from multiple directions, and they just don't have the access to information or resources to to be resilient. And so across the board, we're thinking about how we retool everything to really identify and, and, and address the gaps in access and affordability and all the solutions across those causes. You, you mentioned the pandemic as, as a driver of year-over-year growth in in the field. And mm-hmm. a few months ago, Impact Assets joined forces with, with the nonprofit Stop the Spread. Can, can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about what Stop the Spread does and, and why this partnership made sense for you? Sure. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we we stood up a number of charitable funds right after the, the pandemic became a thing. Um, those funds were focused on what we thought were the three main needs. There are others, but the three main ones where we could really use our platform and and our expertise to make an impact. And one was on business and community resilience. So so making loans to small businesses, to the unbanked, to um, undocumented immigrants, like the the populations that would struggle the most um, in the economic downturn. The second one was on uh, preserving the progress on social justice and climate solutions. So social environmental entrepreneurs who, you know, are, you know, we have more than 600 of them on our platform, um, really focusing on the ones there who have made significant progress against these goals and who whose demise in an economic downturn would mean regression against those goals. So we've stood up a fund to really assist those uh, entrepreneurs. And then the third one was around what, what we called Frontline Heroes, but is now been renamed Stop the Spread. And that one was really targeted at addressing the health crisis around the pandemic. So we were looking at the issues that we had early on around ventilators and PPE, which is still an issue and is never solved, um, around therapeutics and around vaccinations. And then um, as we were talking with our big clients about making investments in these areas, they connected us with, with Stop the Spread, which was an organization that really 
came about very organically. It started with an op-ed and a medium post by uh, Ken Chenault, who's the former CEO of American Express, and Rachel Carlson, who is um, a 30 under 30 CEO and founder of Guild Education, which is a, a an education unicorn. And in this New York Times op-ed, um, they really put out a call to action to the private sector to do their part in addressing the crisis. And that mushroomed into 1,300 CEOs across the U.S. signing on to do their part. And this organization of hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who were helping to connect those CEOs with information or partnerships. And then those also developed into investment opportunities that that really served to support the private sector response to the crisis. So the most storied example was in the early days when ventilators were a real issue. They partnered up GE and Ventec together and really facilitated the partnership there. GE had idle manufacturing lines and Ventec had specs for a cheaper, better, um, faster to manufacture version of a ventilator. And the two partnered, um, Ventec lent GE their specs and they built these manufacturing lines and that that partnership brought 40,000 ventilators to market at a time when we needed them the most and has continued to produce 10,000 ventilators a month. So the focus of Stop the Spread in the early days was activating the private sector with these types of partnerships. Often there would be a need for capital to support um, those things because not all of them were the size of GE. And a lot of these companies were in retail and trying to make PPE with their idle you know, clothing manufacturing lines and needed um, invoice financing or um, other sources of capital in order to actually fulfill the promise that they were trying to make in order to um, to pivot to address these COVID issues. And so in the beginning, the focus was really on standing up additional manufacturing supply and solutions. Um, as the crisis has evolved, of course, we've moved on from ventilators. Uh, PPE is still an issue, even though people have kind of moved on from funding PPE. It's still an enormous issue. We're still seeing our healthcare workers using single-use PPE for days on end. But what's also popped up is, you know, we've evolved our focus and we've also evolved our strategy. So now after merging with Impact Assets, Stop the Spread and Impact Assets have come up with this renewed strategy around defining the role of philanthropy in this crisis. And philanthropists always sort of view their role as as sort of filling the gap between what the public sector is funding and what the private sector is funding and what is you know, the gap in the middle, which is not getting funded. And in the, the context of this crisis, it's, you know, what critical needs, what critical pieces of the puzzle are not getting funded. And there's examples across the board. In the case of therapeutics, government has probably rightly ceded therapeutics development and, and the funding of that to big pharma. Big pharma is really leaning into the the stuff that's in their patented portfolio. And nobody is focusing on the generics, which don't offer exclusivity and are by definition much cheaper and have been out there for decades. And what is such a miss about that is that generics have a known safety profile. They've been used for other purposes in humans for decades. And so we know they're safe We just don't know whether generics can work on COVID or the COVID-related symptoms, and they just need to be trialed 
in this specific scenario. And it's been very difficult to get funding for these very quick, fast-to-market, safe solutions in therapeutics and also in vaccinations. And there's vaccinations is a whole nother topic that's much more complicated, but there are lots of things that act like a vaccination, you know, that are already in market and and sort of in generic status. So there's some big gaps like this that only philanthropy or impact investors can address. And uh, it's been the work of Stop the Spread for, you know, and Impact Assets for the, for the last several months to be identifying gaps just like that and, and then identifying the opportunities for investment uh, or granting to those organizations. Uh, and we've been working with our clients to channel much needed funding to those really important projects. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, the public sector has understandably come under a lot of scrutiny for their handling of the the pandemic. So it sounds like you're you're seeing and and supporting uh, both the private sector and the nonprofit sectors and in, in stepping up and, and kind of filling that that gap. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing I mentioned earlier this um, this trend of you know the same communities being left out. Mm-hmm. You know, in in fairness, like nobody except for the epidemiologists, <laughs> nobody had a playbook for mm-hmm. <laughs> what our response should look like. And what's happening now is that the big, easy-to-scale solutions are getting a lot of attention. The stuff that's ending up in the press is is the stuff that's backed by companies with a marketing budget. And, and so there's just the imperfections of our markets are, are really pulling attention and pulling focus in other places. And what's what's really the biggest theme is that whether we're talking about PPE vaccinations, treatments, it doesn't matter what it is, there's two main themes, and that is all the solutions tend to be fairly expensive and and supported only in major metropolitan areas. So there's a distribution disconnect and there's a disconnect around extreme affordability. And so, you know, we can't get testing to, you know, to vulnerable communities at even $5 a pop, because if we're really going to reopen the economy, we need to be testing, individuals need to be tested multiple times a week. And uh, you can't do that if you're living on forty thousand dollars a year, much less twenty thousand or ten. And so, and those are the those are the folks that are out there the most because they can't afford not to work. Those are our essential workers, and um, those are the folks that need to be tested the most, but can't afford to be tested because mm-hmm. even at Abbott's, you know, reported five dollar price, although we're seeing it, at, you know, at ten and fifteen available to individuals you know, it's still not cheap enough. It needs to be 10 cents, 50 cents a test. And we do see solutions out there that are coming to market at that price point, but are not getting the funding they need. So again, we're seeing, you know, 750 million go to Abbott at a $5 price point for government and, you know, 10 or 15 for individuals and these really extreme affordability, you know, take the test anywhere solutions, you know, buy it on Amazon kind of thing, you know, not getting funding because they're just sort of off the radar or not really fitting the model that various actors are, are trying to, to operate in. So again, mm-hmm. that's the role of philanthropy and it's getting those extreme affordability and extremely accessible solutions to vulnerable communities. You mentioned that that stop the spread came about through a, a call to action to the private sector. What what is your call to action for the for the community? Well, I think um, we've been seeing a lot of things play out. So there's been a real surge, and it's sustained for sure. 
through, you know, it started, the surge started in March and has, has continued to be um, very strong. We're still seeing a lot of grant activity. We're still seeing a lot of investment activity and it's been really consistent. Um, but the, the focus has changed. So I mentioned people have moved on from PPE. Do you um, think that's just exhaustion? with the it pandemic. Is. It is. I think because we're all affected and we all mentally want to be through this. <laughs> yeah. Um like people need time away from it, including mm. the the staff and the donors of large foundations. And we're going to be at this for at least another year. All the epidemiologists advising us. We have we have a a rock star advisory board um staff with a number of really tapped in epidemiologists. They've closed their offices through August of next year with the ex- with the expectation that they'll be extending beyond that. They made these decisions in April, like and you know, we wow. were only able to stomach, you know, closing through the end of the year, but knowing that you know, the experts are saying it's going to take even longer. We're going to be at this for a long time. It's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And the role of philanthropy is going to continue to be enormous because our our money is faster and it's it can be more surgical and flexible. And so the call to action now, I think, is for philanthropists and impact investors to stay plugged in to this crisis. There are grant-making opportunities. There are investment opportunities, regardless of, of what your investment profile you know, strategy is. There are opportunities across the spectrum to really have an impact in this crisis. And there's a role that only we can play. And mm-hmm. I, that the call to action now is is to please just stay plugged in and and don't move on. And we tend to think of, you know, a crisis like Hurricane Katrina is something where people can funnel a lot of aid and then move on. Mm-hmm. This is just completely different. And, and so is racial justice. Um, and the two are very tightly connected. It's communities of color that have an outsized impact in this crisis. And so the things that are... COVID solutions are addressing the injustices of, of the racial injustice system. The overlap in the Venn diagram there is almost 100%. And so we're hearing from some folks, okay, we've done COVID, now we're moving on to racial justice, and then we're going to get back to our normal strategy. And I just think there's a real importance that this crisis is different. It, it has multiple prongs, the Black Lives Matter and the racial justice movement that's afoot is directly connected to the health crisis and the pandemic and the economic crisis. These are all having outsized effect on the same communities. So now's the time. There's yes. a sense of urgency. Um, is, is there anything that, that I haven't asked that you'd like to, to mention before I, I let you go? Well, well, that was it. Um, <laughs> the call to action was, yeah. was, was really it. Um, it. It's just, you know, the ask that everybody, you know, consider at least for the next 12 to 18 months, you know, continuing to lean in, not just to COVID, but to, to Black Lives Matter and to explore racial justice more broadly and its connection to the pandemic. We're, we're here to help with, with all of those topics and we try to make it easy for folks to do. And the other thing I would just end with is that I am tremendously grateful and proud to be a part of this Impact Assets community. Our clients have stepped up in unprecedented and surprising ways. And as difficult as this time has been for everybody, it's been really meaningful and purposeful for us to be supporting all of our clients on all of this really worthy work. So 
just a general thank you um, to, to everyone in our community, including everyone at SOCAP, and a real you know hope that we can continue to work together and to solve these crises. Yeah, that's great. There's definitely, there's a shared history between uh, Impact Assets and, and SOCAP that uh, we yes. won't get into now, but but um, <laughs> a lot of overlap in the in the community and, and I, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, yeah, we're all pulling the same direction. Yep, it's great. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me and, and for all the the money that you've that you've brought into the field of, of impact investing. It's it's uh, it's great to see. Thanks. It's it's our pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Margaret Trilly of Impact Assets. As always, if you want to dive into any of the topics discussed on the call, including their 2020 annual impact report, the work they're doing around COVID response funds, the IA50, the database of impact investment fund managers, we'll link to all those resources on our website at socialcapitalmarkets.net. We always love to see posts on on social media if you enjoyed the episode, ratings on iTunes. You can reach me directly as well if you have any feedback or or recommendations at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. I want to quickly thank our sound engineer, Dave Lashansky, to whom I am eternally grateful for, for making every episode sound as good as they do. I can't recommend him highly enough. Next episode, we'll have a conversation with George Ashton, the Managing Director of Strategic Investments at LISC, or the Local Initiative Support Corporation. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.